Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. Well, I am very excited about today's book discussion. We're talking with Ryan Bird, who contributed to the book, The Great Dechurching by Jim Davis and Michael Graham. If you've been a regular church goer for much of your life, you've probably noticed that congregations look a little thinner and that friends and family, you probably have friends and family who have stopped going to church. The Great Dechurching sets out to better understand who's leaving, why they are going, and what it will take to get them back. Dr. Burge is an assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. His research focuses primarily on religiosity and political behavior in the United States. He's the author of The Nuns, Where They Come From, Who They Are, and Where They Are Going, which just had a second edition published in 2023, and Myths, 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. He is also a pastor in the American Baptist Church and has served his current congregation for over 15 years. Professor Burge, thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So first of all, you know, just get us kind of started with telling us what the great de-churching is. And I think part of also what I think is would be helpful is it clearly the title is alluding to the Great Awakening. So why is that illusion apt for the title of this book? Yeah, so a lot of work I do, like The Nuns, for instance, is a book about religious belonging, which is like, you know, what is your present religion, if any? And you get a bunch of choices like Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, and you say that you're atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. So that's like your social identity. This book is different because it's about what you do, not who you are. So it's for us, a de-church person is someone who used to go to church at least once a month or more and now goes seldom or never, so less than once a year. And and we wanted to use that measure because we actually – if you look at the social science literature, going to – doing religious stuff, going to church, synagogue, or mosque is probably the most important part of religion from just a little de-democratic standpoint, social standpoint, psychological standpoint. So for us, behavior – is probably another way to look at this phenomenon beyond belonging, which I just told you about with the nuns. So that's really the focus here is people who used to go and now don't go. These are not people who never went, and these are not people who still go. These are people who used to go at least once a month, now go less than once a year. And we wanted to make the comparison to the Great Awakening because the Great Awakening, the first and second Great Awakening, were, were two of the most, probably two the most significant religious movements in American history. Um, if you look back at, at at colonial times, for instance, only about twenty percent of people living in New England were part of a religious congregation. So, you know, before the first and second Great Awakening, America was not a really religious place. Um, we were we looked a lot like Western Europe, to be honest with you. And you know, the first and second Great Awakening kind of propelled America into this very religious sphere, and we're living in the residue of the first and second great awakenings and now what's happening with the great dechurching is about 40 million people have dechurched over the last 15 years 40 million if you add up everyone who became a christian during the first great awakening the second great awakening and every billy graham crusade in the united states combined that's less than 40 million people so if you're going to use a scale you might as well use a scale like the great the great awakening and the great dechurching so for everybody we added during those events, we've lost them all, plus some in just the last 15 years or so. Uh, I say without being hyperbolic that I think this is the most significant cultural shift in my lifetime in the last 40 years, 
And we're only beginning now to sort out what it means for the future of not just American religion, but American society, American culture, American democracy. And then, you know, America then has impact and influence on the rest of the world. So what is this doing in other places across the globe at the same time? So, Professor uh, Dr. Burge, a follow-up question to get a little more more detail into who these 40 million people are. I mean, are you saying... I'm particularly interested in like, like age, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I've heard of different movements, uh, you know, in various denominations and whatever, but like, are you talking about, there are 60 year olds who are 65 year olds, grandparents age who went to church for decades and decades and decades, you know, possibly every week, once a month, at least particularly Easter and Christmas or Hanukkah, all of that. And they are no longer also like, what are the, what are the significant trends? I guess I would say in the data, particularly related to like age or part of the country in the U S yeah. So great question. It, it, this is it, it, in some ways it's a young person phenomenon, but in some ways it's not a young person phenomenon. I think it's really important to point that out. So amongst Generation Z, dechurching is higher. Just from a belonging standpoint, over 40% of Generation Z are atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular now. Amongst um, the boomers, it's around 20% are atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular. So Generation Z is like young people now in their 20s. Is that right? Uh, born 1996 or later. So okay. mid-20s and 18 to 26 years old, about 27 years old now. Um, so way less, but here's, and here's a really important point. I make this in 20 miss. There's this perception that it's, it, people become more religious as they age. It's almost like fire insurance. It's like, I'm going to die and I got to get to heaven. Um, if you look at the data, if you break it down into five year birth windows, birth cohorts is what we call them. Every birth cohort is less religious today than it was 15 years ago. And that's people born in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and the 1940s and the 1950s. So this is not you. Can, you don't lose 40 million people by just losing the youth. Like there's not 40 million youth out there to lose you. And this is something I talk about, like with the nuns. When you get to 30 percent of the population, it, it, it's not just one thing anymore. It's not just white people. It's not just people of color. It's not just young. It's not just old. It's not just liberals. Not just conservatives. 30% means that's a swath of every segment of the population, and the de-churching phenomenon has affected literally every segment of the population. Now, some more than others, but no one has gone unscathed over the last 15 years. I mean, I think probably the, the one of the big questions, the most obvious questions then is, like, why? And I think partly related to what you were just talking about with what Mary is saying is that it wouldn't be surprising to learn that young people who grew up with the internet have a distinct culture versus my parents who did not. And, but, but to hear that people, my parents age and their, and their friends, some of them have stopped going to church too. Then it's sort of like, obviously that group I would think has different reasons for not going to church anymore. You know, so you're going to have different, you're going to have probably a variety of different reasons. So yeah, why? I mean, that seems that's just kind of wild to think about that it's that it's affected all these different categories, that it's affecting every segment. And it in that and that's what is so important about this is the the media narrative, and I hate to like bag on the media because I talk to the media folks all the time, but the media narrative is a lot of this is driven by things like politics, right? Like so liberals go to a conservative church for a while and go, I can't deal with all this, you know, conservative stuff and they leave. Or they come out as LGBTQ and the church is not cool with that. And so they, you know, they leave because of those things like these big 
sort of dramatic, salacious events or um, a pastor cheats on their spouse or steals money or something, you know, a scandal, right? If you actually look at the data, and this is this is why the book like never made the New York Times. The, the number one reason why people leave church is because they moved. <laughs> like that's the number one reason. And I think if if this book, like if, if it exists in 20 years in people's minds, it stays in the zeitgeist, it's going to be that most people leave religion in really boring ways. Um, <laughs> it's like logistical stuff, not theological or political stuff. So it's like I got a new job. I got married. I had kids. My schedule changed. I moved. And most people don't leave religion because they hate religion. Okay, that's something really important to note. Like if you look at the data consistently, that is not what's happening. They're leaving religion slowly over a long period of time. You know, usually maybe it's like, you know, going from once a month to once every three months and then once every six months and then once a year because they just don't feel like it's doing anything for them. And they leave and they don't come back because they're like, yeah, I stopped going and nothing changed. And I really don't want to get up on Sunday morning anymore. That is the median person who is de-churched. They're not angry, right? They're not yelling about the Pope and they're not yelling about gay people and they're not yelling about theology. They are literally just like, ah, stop going and I just never want to go back. And that's, I don't hate religion, but I don't love it either. And that's where the average person is. And that's, we can say that because you're defining de-churching as behavior of actually attending in person a service, Correct. you know, uh, once, a, once a month or more. But I guess I'm curious how, do, so you asked uh, qualitative as well as quantitative questions in your research? We only did quantitative or quantitative, but we wrote our survey in a specific way to just look at these type. This is not like a general purpose survey. This was done three different surveys for this specific thing. And we actually added questions in the third wave to like poke more into certain things we were looking at. And, you know, like I so initially the way this worked was I was going to do the data and kind of be behind the scenes. And then after a while, I did so much data, like just put you on the on the title page. So that's how I got the with authorship at the end. But once you, the thing about people who deal with data a lot, you get a sense of things over time, right? Like there's this feeling that sort of emerges from the data. It's almost qualitative in some weird way. Like you get like, oh, these are the kind of people who are trying to tell me something in this data. And that's just the overwhelming. I did this data for like four months, just making charts and graphs. And like it was a whole process. And the overwhelming sense I get is that the median person is not angry. The media, and I've done other things subsequently, like I'm doing consulting projects right now for other other groups. I'm seeing the exact same thing. A lot of it is just like apathy, not anger. And I think that in some ways is actually more difficult for the church to overcome than the anger thing, right? Because it's like, hey, care about this. You can't force someone to care about something they don't care about. And I think that's that's the hill the church has to climb right now is trying to make people care about something they really just don't care about that much. I guess I just can't help but wonder what that says, though, about our culture that questions about like the ultimate meaning of things don't really matter that much. Do you have any sense of that? Like how <laughs> I guess that's a yeah. big question, but like, <laughs> I don't know, you're talking about, you know, the state of your soul and what does it mean to live a good life or I mean, kind of like basic religious questions. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like it's I guess one thing it's weird to me. One of the things that comes out in the book is that there are some of these groups, basically, if you press people on these questions, they basically believe in Christian in like the the articles of the creed and stuff like that. 
Um, oh, that's a really good point to emphasize, by the way. We yeah. ask a bunch of orthodox, like basic Christian orthodoxy questions, like the divinity of Jesus Christ and the atonement and like big picture stuff that every you know Christian probably should believe to be a professing Christian. A lot of these people believe all that stuff or most of that stuff. It's and, and this is something like I tell my students all the time because I'm a political scientist by training. Your world is not the world. You know, in the people, you, the people you hang out with are not representative of all of America, right? So I think about religion all day. I think about politics all day. I think about religion and politics all day. I know that the average American does not think about politics all day, nor do they think about religion all day. So a lot of this of what I'm trying to do is say, like, listen, the world that we run in, because, we, you know, we're all religious people. We're on a religious podcast right now. We're talking to religious viewers and listeners because that's who these people are. The average person is not that person. The average person goes to work nine to five. Um, they don't think about the big picture. They don't think of a philosophy or theology. They don't really think about existential questions often. They watch football. They go to dinner. They, you know, take their kids to sporting events and they try to live the best life they can. And that's where they are. And they think for a lot of them, they go, eh, religion really doesn't. But I think the, the bigger issue is like the apathy piece. And this is something I think like which is endemic in America right now, which is probably the most dangerous thing happening in America right now is we become anti-institutions. And, and it's not just religion, by the way. It's it's politics. It's media. It's banks. It's the unions. You name it. We are more skeptical today than we were 20 years ago. And we're not joining stuff anymore. We're more atomized, socially atomized than we've ever been. So I think those macro level trends are actually probably doing more work when it comes to de-churching than anything the church has or has not done in the last 20 or 30 years. It's just we don't join and we don't trust. And to be part of a religious community, you've got to do both those things. And how you change the zeitgeist and making us more trusting and more and more willing to join something is not an easy thing to do. You know, one of the things the book does is have these kind of composite sketch people to give examples of of who the de-churched are and but i mean i i have a relative who fits exactly the one of these kinds of patterns i guess her one of her parents kind of pressed her on you know why they hadn't joined a church she i think she believes in orthodox stuff and everything but she basically just said jesus can't be the most important thing in my life right now and I, it's hard for me to put myself in that place of like believing everything, but then being like, but not the most important thing. I don't know. It's hard. But like you say, because but I have a background in theology, like I'm the kind of person who chose to get a Ph.D. in systematic theology. So but like you say, my my world is not the world. <laughs> it is. And, and that's the other thing. I think a lot of times really religious people have a very hard time trying like looking at those people and go, why don't you care more about this stuff? This yeah. is your eternal soul and purpose. And Absolutely. They, go, they go, I don't believe as much as you do, and I'll never believe as much as you do. And no matter how much you preach to me and how much you tell me and how much you try to teach me, I will never be as convinced as you are that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he suffered blood and died for my sins. I believe it in the abstract, but like the real nuts and bolts and guts of that, I don't think lots of people can ever get to that place. So the question is, what do you do with those people, right? And I think, unfortunately, in the culture that we live in right now, either you, when it comes to religion, you're either all in or you're all out. 
There's no like there's no lukewarm. There used to be this great tradition in America called the mainline Protestant Christianity, which was like the Episcopalian, United Church of Christ, United Methodist. Uh, 50% of Americans were mainline Protestant in the 1950s. Now 10% of Americans are mainline Protestant, heading towards 5% very soon. Um, the Catholic Church used to have a wonderful liberal wing, uh, a progressive tradition, social teachings and everything else. And now if you look at the data on priests, almost none of them identify as liberal. So now like religion has become almost overwhelmingly conservative Christian religion, white Christian religion. And a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'd, I'd go to church if it wasn't that. They don't have the other option now like they used to have 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And I think for a lot of them, that's why they leave is because they think the only option they have is no religion or conservative religion. And they're religious but liberal and can't find a place for them to go. Well, and I also see some crossover into the political um, – the legislation advocacy voting world because you know living in the greater Washington, D.C. area, and my husband's a lobbyist, like I see a lot of – evidence the reality that what happens in Washington, D.C. does affect people's lives. But I think when I travel and I talk to family and friends, like there are many people who just don't really, who really are not aware of that. And so therefore, I think that for them, that translates into not really getting involved, not following the news and, you know, not really aware of what is going on. And and I do encounter that general kind of apathy. Well, you know, I my it's not going to make a difference anyway. The elite, the educated, uh, you know, the people who are really in power and authority, they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. So I'm not going to get involved. Doesn't really affect me. So there is that kind of apathy that you're talking about. And I think, um, you know, one of the points that Aaron has made, you know, brought out is that um, that the education is at play here, too. So, so I wonder if you could share like what's kind of going on with that, that the highly educated are the ones who are usually the church going. Yeah, that's, I think that's like probably what's going to go on my tombstone at the end of my life is, is trying to bust the myth of like, oh, go to college and you'll learn about Nietzsche and you'll leave religion behind. Um, if you actually look at the data and the data is really consistent on this fact, the people who are the most likely to be going to church on a weekly basis are those with a college degree, four-year college degree. Those are the ones who are in church the most. And actually, if you have a postgraduate degree, you're more likely to go weekly than someone with a four-year degree. Uh, when it comes to affiliation, the people who are the least likely to be atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular, are those with a four-year college degree or more. Actually, people with a master's degree are the least likely to be non-religious. So, you know, and if you look at, if you cut it by income, there's this really fascinating thing that happens. The, the, it's curvilinear. So the people who are not going are those at the very bottom of the income spectrum and the very top of the income spectrum. It's like a hump in the middle. The people who are most likely to go to church this Sunday are people with a four-year college degree making between sixty dollars and $100,000 a year. That is the average churchgoer in America. And I think this is actually really bad for a whole bunch of reasons because church used to be the great meeting place where you sit next to people who had a different economic background. You know, uh, I read a book uh, called Titan about um, John D. Rockefeller. He still went to church every Sunday. His, he was a Baptist. I'm an American Baptist. That's what he was too. The only social event he did um, when he was his most famous and someone asked him, why do you go through all the hoopla going to church? He goes, it's my only chance to talk to a mechanic during the week. And I thought like that is to me like that is what church used to be was a great mixing place, melting pot, social hour. And now churches have become all one note. 
and there's not a lot of poor people in the pews. There's not a lot of super rich people in the pews. There's not a lot of racial diversity in the pews. There's not a lot of political diversity in the pews. And I think for people who don't fit, don't, don't check the boxes, like I'm not married, I don't have kids, I'm not good income and not educated, I just don't go. And they're being left out and left behind and falling behind further in a rapidly changing economy where a church used to be a place to kind of build you up. I just think this is a really bad outcome for American church, American religion, but also American society and American democracy. We can't survive in a world where we live in our little camps, you know, and we just talk to our own people and we don't have a great spot where we can see other people from other backgrounds. Well, I want to kind of follow up, I think, on that question about the different groups, because, you know, this book, it divides, it talks about different categories of the de-church and a lot of the D church say they they stopped going because they just didn't fit in, right? And yep. but then some of the categories of people they're more center left. If we want to stick with the political thing, but I mean you could look at other things. But if you wanted to make it easy, they're center left or they're center right. You know they and they didn't feel like they belong. And I think when you're looking at one category at a time, you could say. Okay, well, we could reach that group if if our if and I'm thinking of a local church or a parish, they could say, well, we could try to reach that group by doing this thing. But you if you do that, you're probably going to alienate who you already have in some way, you know, and I think part of the reason I was sensitive to this question is because, you know, my, I, I haven't even I'm Catholic, but I grew up evangelical and I'm somewhat familiar with the church growth movement, how part of the idea behind it was you can get churches to grow faster if they're really homogenous because most people want to worship with people who are like them. I mean, that's probably a crude way of putting it, but that's basically my understanding of what they were doing. And anecdotally, that there's something to that. Like when I've gone to parishes or churches that are mostly like kind of left-leaning activist types, they have a lot of energy, you know? Um, and if I go to a church that's more liturgically traditional, um, you know, where we have a lot of Latin and things like that, those churches have a lot of energy. It tends to be the ones that have a really strong identity. They seem to be the ones that they are very attractive to the people who are sort of lean that way. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I wonder, and you know, this is where it's helpful. I think that you're both a pastor and a political science guy. Is you know, is the solution to plant more? more types of churches that reach out to different groups, but that would seem to not what you're talking about, how this is bad for society. Mm -hmm. That would seem to exacerbate those problems. If you had the one church that reaches out to the, you know, one group and the other church reaches out to another group. Uh, but then how do you make, how do you get the uh, a local church to actually be able to bring all these people together? That seems like a huge challenge what do you, how do you, how do you do reach out to all of those groups? You know? Yeah. I think Aaron, you've really, you've really hit the nub, right? Which is like, you can't do both things at one time in an effective way. Um, there's a great book by Niebuhr called the social sources of denominationalism, where he basically argues that like not Protestant denominations were inevitable because as churches try to become everything to everyone, they're going to alienate a certain subset of their population and they're going to spin off into their own denomination. Right. So he says like, it's in, like, why do we have so many denominations? It's because we're just, we can't be everything to everyone. But what I think is real, like, to me, that here's the big counter argument. The, the kind of religion that's growing in America right now is non denominational Protestant Christianity. It's the like only kind of religion that's really growing in America, period. Um, 
amongst Protestants, like Lutherans are down, Baptists are down, Methodists are down, Episcopal, everyone's down except non-denominationals. I know they're not a denomination, but whatever. Like they kind of are in some weird way. Um, and, but those are mega churches. A lot of those churches are like very large now, like five, seven thousand people on a Sunday morning. You know, they have multiple services. So in some weird way, they are bucking the trend of like trying there. They are actually being everything to everyone, but they're doing it in a really weird way, which is that. And I tell them all the time, you've got to really be mindful of how tall your walls are in religion because you make them too tall. It's like impossible to jump the wall and get in. Right. So think about like Hasidic Jews, for instance, like good luck becoming an Hasidic Jew, like in the near future, you got to change everything. But if your walls are tall, it's almost impossible to get in. But it's also almost impossible to get out. You know, like Hasidic Jews, if you leave the faith, you've left everything. You know, your culture, your society, your economics, everything. Um, Non-denoms have gone the other way, like on the spectrum, where they have basically no walls at all. It's like, y'all come. When do we have service? Like every day, you know, like four or six times a weekend we got service. And so people come in, but they also come out. Like there's a lot of churn. There's more churn in non-denominational churches than other churches because they don't build walls to keep people in. And so I think like when we look at those big churches, they are diverse. Like if you go look at like Joel Osteen's church, for instance, like when they pan the crowd, they do that sometimes. It is really a racially diverse congregation. But my question is, what percentage of those people are going to be there in the next 20 or 30 years, right? Like how many are going to spin out and go to another non-denominational church? This is always an inherent tension. And I tell people like the biggest problem with, with churches is this. The ideal size of church is like two to 300 people. It's also the worst economic size a church can be. Because you need several pastors, full-time staff, but you probably don't have the budget for that unless you have a huge like endowment or a lot of givers. If you get bigger than that, you're not going to know everybody. If you're smaller than that, you don't need a full-time pastor. So like, you, the, the, there's always this inherent tension between what we know on a social science side and what religion should be like in practicality. And I think sometimes there's no way to square that circle. I had a one of my professors at Catholic University was – he had been a, a professor at a Lutheran seminary, and he talked about how – he had just assumed, and most people in Lutheran leadership had assumed that that um, young people who came out of that ideal size church, you know, a few hundred people, you know, that they were more engaged because it was smaller and everybody knew each other and that sort of thing. But when they actually studied it, studied the issue, they found that most of their clergy came from the big mega church type churches because and what the best they could figure is because those are the ones that had all the youth programs and things like that. So and not just in terms of sheer numbers, but I mean, the actual the proportion, like proportion, like those two or three hundred that size of a congregation typically produce no clergy. You know, I mean, like wouldn't produce any clergy. Not that that's just the only barometer of health, but it's certainly it. But it does say something about. He said that it it kind of like punctured his the, this idea that he had about about how to best you know work with young people and keep them engaged. I don't That's know if you've point. ever seen anything like that. This was kind of like a denominational study that they had. No, I, I get that point. Like you've got to have a great youth program and you've got to have, and that's why people are going to these non-denom churches, by the way, because they have full-time youth pastor. They have full-time children's pastor. They have their own like kids depot, you know, like a place for the kids to go play and they have great programming and camps and meetings and st like that all is great at the end of the day. But how if you go like can you imagine? And this happens all the time, by the way. People will meet up and go. They go, "What church do you go to?" I go to X Y Z church. They go, "Oh, I've been going there too for five years. How come I've never seen you there?" Because they go at different times. 
You know what I mean? I just think that's fundamentally like opposed to what like religion is supposed to be. It's supposed to be like an extended family, like in a real community where you know each other's needs and desires and wants and help each other when they're struggling. And I think non-denoms have tried to make big church small by doing like things like small groups and, you know, things like that. But at the end of the day, there's only 15 people, you know, really well. Uh, I, I just don't think that's a great model. And I don't think it's good for democracy either, by the way. Like only like cloistering yourself. It's like, oh, we all live in the same neighborhood. Let's have a Bible study. Like that is the opposite of what you want to do because you're all probably upper middle class white people living in your neighborhood together. You know, like that's the opposite of what we want religion to do. Big corporate worship with people from all age groups and all backgrounds is the ideal. And yet it is so incredibly hard to do anymore. Well, so this book, you know, we we haven't really been explicit about this. Maybe listeners would have caught on that it's mostly aimed at evangelicals. It's mostly talking about evangelical communities. Um but you also do discuss de-churched Catholics. And so um, first, you know, a couple of questions on that. First, how is this issue different for Catholics? I mean, you know the Catholic world pretty well. Yeah. Um, and so where where do Catholics and evangelicals differ in terms of how the de- the great de-churching is affecting them? But then where are they the same? Where, where are we all sort of in the same boat? Yeah, so I think that to me the big divergence is that Catholicism, for good or for ill, is much more of a cultural label in American society as opposed to a theological or religious idea. Like people like I'm Catholic, but I haven't been to mass since 1978 Mm -hmm. because they're Irish or they're Italian or they're Hispanic. You know, they grew up in a, in a third, fourth generation family of Catholics. And so they'll, they'll retain the Catholic moniker while being more like, for instance, if a Protestant stops attending for five years, they might call themselves a nun, right? They might say, I'm nothing in particular now. Cause like very few people are like fourth generation Baptist. <laughs> like that is not the same, like it doesn't have the same stickiness is the term we would use. So what we're seeing amongst Catholics is if you look at the top number, which is like the share of Americans who are Catholic, it's still really robust. It's still around 20% of Americans are Catholic, which is pretty impressive when you think about the nuns going to 30%. But if you dig below the surface, what you find is the share of Catholics who say they go to mass nearly every week or more was 50% in the 1970s, and now is 25% today. Um, amongst evangelicals, the share who are attending weekly or more has gone up 10 points over the last 50 years. For mainline, it stayed the same. For black Protestants, it stayed the same. Because again, if they stop attending, they'll drop the label. So now they're not in the denominator anymore. Catholics will be like, ah, I'm still Catholic, but I, you know, like, but I haven't gone to mass in 10 years. I think that to me is the primary difference between de-churched evangelicals and de-churched uh, Catholics is that it, the, the, just the way that they understand the term from a survey perspective is just a lot different. Do you think some of that also something I've reflected on is just Catholics are so institutional I think about like I volunteer to coach my kids um, basketball teams and that's run through that's through the Catholic parish. And um, and it's interesting because there's a lot of people at this parish that are very intentional, intense kinds of Catholics. And that's a and a lot of them aren't from around here. You know, they move to the D.C. area to work or go to school, working with the either with in different ways with the school or with the basketball program. You get like the guy who has the rosary hanging in his on his car, but he still like uses foul language in front of the kids and stuff like that. And like has an accent like he's lived here his whole life, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and that is. But it's like we have a lot of these sorts of programs and things like that. Like we have sports where almost none of the kids who play are Catholic or Mm -hmm. we have schools where 
not, maybe not even half of the kids are Catholic. Yeah. We just have a lot of institutions where you have a lot of people involved who aren't even Catholic or they, they like you say, they haven't been to mass. And so maybe that's part of the reason the identity thing yep. is still a big, it's still a big part of it for them. Yeah, you got it. I mean, I think you had, Aaron, I think you're out right on, on target with saying the Catholic Church is probably the most institutional religion in America. Actually, I'll say without a doubt, it's the most institutional religion in America uh, in terms of scope and scale. Like most other denominations have not built structures like that, which I think is is like a double edged sword, right? Like I think in some ways it's really, really good because now you have things like hospitals and schools and colleges and universities and all these wonderful programs. But I think it almost like it like seeps into you in a not cognitive way, almost like a subconscious way where like, oh, I go to Catholic school and I, you know, I play on the Catholic. I went to Catholic high school and I went to Catholic hospital. You know, like it doesn't really like get in your heart and mind. So it doesn't become like a theological worldview that you think about. Protestantism is, is way less institutional, especially the kind that's growing right now, which is like we talk about non-denoms. Non-denoms are the antithesis of the Catholic Church. Like they are the Catholic Church is very, very, very top down. Like that's just how it's always going to be. Non-denoms are like a dude in his basement who was like an insurance broker. Is like, let's start a church. And they start a church. Like, <laughs> you know, like no one has to give them permission. They just do it. And like, how long is the pastor going to serve? As long as he wants. How much is he going to get paid? Whatever they decide. You know, like there's no sort of like, oh, there's no adult in the room in those situations. And so I think that is like part of the danger of institutionalization is that like it doesn't it's always in the background, but it never comes to the foreground. The The problem with the other side is there's just no accountability. You know, like these, the, a lot of institutions are completely unaccountable now. And I think that's going to lead to a lot of problems for American Christianity going forward. Well, and even like in research we've done at work, you know, people, people will reference those rules, those dumb rules or those great rules, however they look at it. But in one of those rules is, or obligations is go to keep holy the Sabbath, go to mass every Sunday. And I mean, the, the connection is, is right here, right? The people that are active in the parish are going to mass every Sunday. They might go in addition, you know, throughout the week, they get engaged, they're involved. So, I mean, I guess it, it leads to the question, like, so what do we, what do we do about it? How do we take advantage uh, and learn what lessons can we draw from this research? To help yeah. people get involved more and go to church more and, and church rather than de-church. I think the one thing that I and I tell every pastor I can talk to is like the problem is like, the, God bless you, pastors and theologians. Like if you have a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. So if you've been taught everything's a vertical problem, then you think everything's a vertical problem. Like it's all about praying and fasting and preaching better and evangelization if you're an evangelical and all those things. But like I'm a social scientist first, so I think almost every problem is a horizontal problem. And so I think a lot of reasons people didn't stick around at church is not because pastors don't matter that much at the end of the day. Like they really, if you look at the data over and over again, very few people go, I go to that church because it's a great preacher. You know, they they go because their friends are there. Like that's actually one of the big findings of the book is like, what would make you come back? We asked that of like everyone, what would make you come back? And like friends in a different context is like the, the like I'm looking for more friends. My friends are going there. Their social opportunities are always like in the top three or five. That's what people are looking for in religion is the horizontal aspect of it, not necessarily the – ver. because we talked about the vertical aspect. A lot of them can't believe that stuff or just refuse to believe that stuff as much as the priest wants them to believe. But you know what they can believe in? The feeling they get sitting next to their friend in the pew every Sunday 
Like that is a powerful factor. And I think in a time when we are more lonely, loneliness is an epidemic in American society right now. That's what CDC says, right? That's not just me making stuff up, especially amongst older people. We are needing more space to hang out, right? There's there's this thing in, in social science that's called the, the three space problem. First space is home. Second space is work. What's the third space? The third space should be a social space where you just go meet people without any work obligations or home obligations. It's where you hang out. So what are the third spaces in American society? Most people don't have one anymore. And during COVID, we had one space because your home became your work and you didn't have a third space. So that's a huge social problem for us. So I tell pastors and priests, think about the 15 minutes before worship and after worship. Don't rush people out the door. Right. Like leave the lights on, keep the music playing in the background, let people just talk to each other in the pews and build relationships. That's why they set up play dates with the kids and times to go to dinner with friends and just talk with each other and then create social space in your calendar. Not everything has to be like, oh, we're going to meet for Bible study or we're going to have a, a big evangelization thing. Like just have a potluck. Have a barbecue, have a get together, and it lasts as long as it should last with no obligations and no feeling that we have to stop. Those are the kind of things that you can preach at them all day long. You know, Philip Yancey is this famous uh, evangelical theologian. No one became a Christian because they lost the argument. They come because they want to be with their friends and give them more of that. And they might believe more and more the longer they're there. Well, it's interesting to me when you pointed out uh, logistics, like people moving is the number one reason, right? So immediately I thought of, you know, hospitality committees or like welcoming people. And how do you make it known to people who are new to the area that you're a welcoming church? Come on in. Hey, you know, and and so events, I mean, we uh, our parish, we have, I think it's once a year, but it should be a little bit more than that, like uh, a social for new members new parishioners, something like that. So I think those kinds of things could also help. What do you think of that? Oh, I think you should get in with your real estate. If you got real estate agents in the con in the congregation, you should be hitting them up hard and saying like, because the people move in, if, especially like a place around DC where there's a lot of churn, right? People moving in, moving out for jobs a lot. And they're moving a long way away. They're not moving just like down the road. They're looking to set down roots and build community. And you can say, you know what? Great community here, great schools. I go to a great church at so-and-so. You know, we're very welcoming to new people. Just something so subtle as like that little slide, that piece of information across the table and see what happens. That If you look at the fastest-growing churches in America, the one thing they almost always have in common is they're in fast-growing suburbs of major metropolitan areas because there's more churn in the population. There are more people moving in who don't have roots and are looking for roots. It's a lot easier to bring someone who's from outside the community to your church and try to pluck them out of another congregation into your congregation. Plus you don't want to do that anyway. That's mean. You know what I mean? So like go to where the people are going to and then find ways to welcome them into your community. And I think for a lot of them, they're lonely, right? They might move in with their family. They don't know the schools. They don't know the kids. They don't know anything going on. They need a recommendation for a veterinarian and a dentist and, you know, like little things like that. And where do they find that? Friends in the congregation. Help them ease their way into that community. And I think that's what church used to provide. And and it still could provide that. But a lot of people are like, why am I so lonely? I'm like, because you don't go to you don't do anything, dude. Like go, go, go to a third space and see how much it'll make your life better. And all the data says it will make your life better by being part of a community of people. I, I've been a part of a couple of different churches that now these weren't very big. There was more that medium size you were talking about. But in every case they had like you know, the uh, coffee hour after the service that everybody went to and, 
you at least had a handful of people that were pretty outgoing and recognize visitors and go like introduce themselves so so that visitors weren't or newcomers weren't just standing there by themselves they both also like had these parish listservs you know some kind of email type lists that the pastor wasn't a part of where you get like the recommendations and so like somebody who's just moved in says we're trying to find a pediatrician or trying to find a vet or whatever you know i think there's something a lot to that that like it's just people want a place to belong it wasn't that it was the pastor bringing people in it was that you had all this other stuff going on lots of lots of social type events more than anything else and think about scheduling that stuff like really be intentional intentional like the word we use we overuse the word intentional be intentional about planning events that are purely social carve out part of your budget for just social stuff right ba backpack giveaway barbecue carnival 4th of july celebration just take 5% of your budget and say we're going to spend this on purely social stuff and nothing else and we expect nothing in return you know not going to hand out contact cards not going to do like some sort of like sermon or any religious thing no praise and worship like evangelicals love to do just hang out for as long as it, and you got bouncy houses and you got food and you got good time. That is, can I just say like that to me is how you save people and you save them first by, by helping them under, like save them socially. And then the religion part kind of comes secondarily to that. Cause what they're going to realize is like, like a lot of people think religious people are weird, but once you like sit with them for a couple hours and go, Hey, you're not weird. You're a normal person like me. You know, you're just trying to get through life. Like I'm trying to get through life. And I think you can help me get through life and I can help you get through life. That's how you, that's how this thing works. And somehow along the way, we forgot that. And I don't know why. Ryan, this has been a really fun conversation. I really appreciate you taking your, your Monday off. This is your day off. So I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. So thanks a lot. It's been a really great conversation. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. We've been talking with Ryan Burge about The Great Dechurching, published by Zondervan. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Mm -hmm.